Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now, we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program broadcast. My name is Christy Peoples and I'll be your host for this session. Tonight, we're privileged to have Joanna Hardy joining us. Joanna is broadcasting live from Los Angeles, California, while the Sounds True team and I are all here in our Boulder studio. Joanna will be speaking with us tonight about how to answer questions skillfully. Joanna is an insight meditation practitioner and teacher. She's a founding member of the Meditation Coalition, and she's a member of the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Joanna is also a visiting retreat teacher at Insight Meditation Society and collaborator on numerous online meditation programs. Welcome, Joanna. Mm, thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> it's always fun to hear what I'm doing <laughs> from somebody else's mouth. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I want to share something that's very near and dear to me and in a very important aspect of my teaching. And I think it's valuable to share with up and coming teachers. I think it's valuable to discuss with teachers that are already teaching. Uh, it's a topic we can really grow in constantly. It's actually, it actually is quite a cutting edge practice for us as teachers, because as students question into or ask about what we're teaching, it really helps us fine tune the way that we communicate. Um, it helps us fine tune and asks our, ask ourselves what we actually do or do not know enough about to be teaching. Um, it's sort of sometimes when I think about it, it really is polishing the stone for us. And it also um, helps us get closer to the community that we're serving, helps us be in a knowing space, in a learning space with our students. Um, I think often a mistake that teachers make or that students make in regards to teachers is putting them on a pedestal or projecting an all-knowing um, experience. And one of the main things that questions do is it reminds us of our wholeness in the practice together. It reminds us of the integral and important part that there is a teacher and there is a student or there are teachers and there are students. And at different times, we're in different positions. Just because we're in front of the room does not mean that we aren't a student or that we aren't learning. So... One of the things I've noticed throughout my years of teaching and have talked to many teachers about this is oftentimes we can come in all excited and all intentional with this prepared talk or these prepared meditation instructions. And we have our notes and we have our piece of paper and we're ready to go and we've been preparing for a week. And then we get into a room and it's like, uh-oh, there's people here, right? We have this running monologue going that we want to perfect and have it right. Um, and a really important aspect of what we're even doing in the teacher's seat is to teach, right? It is to respond to the needs of our community, to respond to the needs of the people that are in the room. And so oftentimes when we get set in one monologue or way of teaching, we forget who we're actually teaching to and learning with. So the questions really help remind us, even if we do get in this cadence where we start talking and talking and talking and talking, trust that your students will remind you um, 
about what they didn't understand, how we weren't actually skillful or good at describing or relaying what we're trying to describe or relay. So um, I think I hold that as a really powerful and important teaching moment for me as a teacher to really see who's in the room, right? If you think that you're going to teach a compassion practice, for instance, one day, and I'm not saying you have to change your teaching, but you notice that everyone in there is full of energy and super excited and can't sit still and, um, you know, really wants to do something or needs something different than maybe the way that we approach our teaching will look different dependent upon who's in the room. So really, first, when we're settling in our teaching postures, see who's out there, see who's needing teachings from us and how we can maybe ameliorate our talk or our instructions so that we are serving our community. Um, the reason I'm saying this is because these questions come, questions come when there's a lack of understanding. And that doesn't mean ignorance. It doesn't mean um, anything other than when we are sitting and talking as a teacher, our understanding, our stories, the techniques we've learned are being placed on our community, on our students. But then what we have to understand is there are the, all of these minds, all of these conditions, all of these different histories and practices, some beginners, some more experienced, some having come from a lot of trauma, some having come from uh, an argument, some having come from a hard day. So, you know, there's lots going on in the lives of the people that we're talking to. So when we're talking, their questions are popping up the whole time that we're talking. They're challenging what we're saying. They're arguing with what we're saying. They're curious about what we're saying. They're engaged with what we're saying. But just know that there's a lot going on in the minds of the students. And we've all been students, so we're, we're aware of that. We know that that's what's happening. So the more clear, the more succinct, the more explanatory we can be, the better it is for these minds that are popping off up, out here. And then know that as a teacher, we're not coming in to impress, we're not coming in to be funny or to be intelligent or to feed our egos, but we really are there to answer these questions that these students come with. They come to us as teachers, to you as teachers, and I'm going to use the word expert, but I want to use it in a very broad you know, expanse is they come to us as experts. They come to us hoping that we can give them some tools, that we can give them some guidelines, that we can give them some boundaries, that we can teach them, teach them how to meditate, right? So with that, we hope that there are questions. There needs to be questions going on in the minds of the students. Um, it's actually important that there are questions. Um, so, you know, I just want to frame that, that first piece around really understanding why we show up in a room and what our intention is, is to share a teaching. And then the beauty of alchemy of watching how it goes into our students' minds, into their practice, and then getting to respond to ways that they want to learn and know how to do it better or, you know, learn more. Um, so, so when questions are being asked, it really, it's an ask for us to step up to the subtleties of, of the practice, right? Cause we might get some questions and we do get questions, um, that feel very vague or we can't quite grapple with what this person is asking us. You know, so one of them that I get often is how do I know if I'm doing it right? Right? Like that's a, that's a broad question or will this help me in my relationships with other people? Or there's all kinds of questions that are very broad that are very. So when a question feels vague, it's important to ask into the question because the, our students are asking this question for a reason. So if you get a vague question, something that is not clear to you, instead of just launching into something so you can kind of get it off of your plate so you don't have to think about it anymore and you're processing through your own mind, I think it's really important to include the student in on the inquiry process. 
So what I mean by that is to ask into the question. So if somebody said to me, how do I know if I'm doing it right? I would actually ask them, well, what are, what are you doing? What's the it that you're talking about? And, and with the, upon, dependent upon their response, I can actually know, I can keep asking into the question so I can get to the root of it. I can get to the subtlety of it. I can get to the core of it. Um, so I feel like that's a really good practice for a teacher is to keep asking the student into the question. It's also important to repeat the question. So when a student asks a question, say, am I hearing you correctly? Are you asking dot, dot, dot? And then if you need to ask into it more, they might say, no, that's not actually what I said. Um, this is what I mean. You know, because sometimes people are very nervous to even ask a question in a room. And it's up to us to really kind of parse it out and see what the question really is and how we can be the most helpful. And it's also okay once you do that and you're still feeling like the question is vague to not have the right answer, right? Because there, there are so many answers that there isn't necessarily a right answer, but there's an answer that will be helpful to that student in the moment, right? Sometimes I oftentimes work with teaching teams and one of the really valuable parts of working with a teaching team, especially during a question and answer period, is that I can have one really great answer because <laughs> I always think my answers are great. Um, and then they'll have an answer and, and it's like, oh, well that one was great too and totally appropriate and it was different. Right. So really, it's mostly not having a right answer, but having a helpful answer with where your students are in the moment. And that same student can ask you the same question one year and the next year ask the same question, but have a very different relationship to the practice and to the teaching. And then the answer will change. Right. So there, there needs to be a fluidity. There needs to be sort of a way that we can um, have, we definitely need to be in our mindfulness and in our practice and in our integrity when we're sitting in front of a room because people really do count on us. You know, when we are in that space, um, there's a lot of vulnerability that we're talking to. There's trauma that we're talking to. Um, there's, you know, hope that we're talking to. There's broken relationship that we're talking to. And not to put pressure on that, and at the same time to sit knowing the responsibility that we have. And so our vulnerability and our ability to get as close to our practice as possible is really important. Because then we are modeling. Then a lot of questions don't even need to be asked because we're actually modeling the, the living practice for people. And also just knowing that not all students are going to agree with us. You know, it's really important to, for students to challenge, um, especially maybe somebody who's been working on and grappling with a practice for a long time, and they've found some real um, growth, they found some liberation, they found some transcendence or even some um, just ease in their life because of a practice that they're working on. So we might be presenting something in a way that doesn't fit for them, and that's okay. So we'll, we might have some really challenging, um, challenging questions. You know, we might have people that might want to disagree with us. And so again, and, th and that will happen often. There will be either the, pe the person that has a lot of opinion and they're just, they don't have a question. They more have a very, very, very long comment. <laughs> um, and that happens often. Um, or there will be someone that can be somewhat aggressive in their question asking and really try to, you know, kind of duke it out with you, you know. And, and one of the best ways to handle those moments is one Try to have fun with it, right? Like try to experience it as this person just wants to know. They, they're not my enemy. It's not personal, right? It's not about us, although there is projection. But how can I best serve this moment? How can I best serve this person who has a real question for themselves, even if it's sounding like a comment? Um, so... 
one time I was teaching a, a large program that they do at Spirit Rock, and I was asked to come and be a speaker for it for a day. Um, and I was teaching about a very specific topic that was somewhat uh, uncomfortable for some people. I was speaking about, you know, just to, to tell you what it was, I was speaking about parenting and I was talking, I was asked by Spirit Rock to come and talk about parenting. And what ended up coming up in the community um, were people who hadn't been parented, did not have maybe traditional biological mothers and fathers, people that were adopted, never knew their parents, people that were fostered. And so they very rightfully expressed to me that they weren't appreciating my languaging <laughs> because I was using a very traditional languaging around parents. Um, so one of the most beautiful things was for me to be in my practice and say, you know, they're right. They're right. There's, I have something to learn here. And so what it allowed me to do because I was in my practice, because I didn't need to be defensive or right, or, you know, the author of all family languaging, I got to ask into the question. I got to ask into the group, well, what terminology would be better to use? Right. Cause there was a lot of inflammatory comments around it. And so for me, it was a beautiful learning experience to not say, well, this is how I did it. This is the way it goes. This is traditional, right? But to say, help me here. Let's, let's be a learning community. Let's do this together. I don't have an answer to you. Um, and interestingly, they didn't have an answer either, um, which made it even more important and beautiful because then we got to be alive in the question together. Um, so every day I'm learning from how to move and respond with the community that's asking the questions by being in my practice and by sometimes saying, you know, I just don't know. Um, I know that it is important for our communities and our students to trust us. You know, this is an important aspect because that's the reason why they're coming to us in the first place. Um, they want to be seen. They want to be heard. Um, and it's very important for us to not bypass that with our own agenda. You know, so like I was saying about having an idea that we're coming in with and we're going to teach this thing and they're going to learn what I have to tell them. Um, but really paying attention to how we need to be fluid, how we need to move, how we need to stay really connected to our internal process and what's being resistant and what's being, you know, showing up. And I in no way am saying that you need to be perfect because I don't actually think that's good modeling. Um, but what we do need to do is show up in our integrity and in our authenticity. And they will see that. They will notice that. And it's important. Um, let me see what else I have here. So when I say that we're coming in as, you know, these quote unquote experts, and I, and I say this, I think that experts, I've heard research say experts are made by the people that come to them, not by a definition that they give themselves, right? So we can't necessarily call ourselves an expert, but people who come to us for information, for tools, for guidance, for learnings, they are the ones that tag us an expert. So you have these people that are coming to you for, you know, these specific tools or guidance. So one person asked in a question, well, do I give a lot of space to their own learning? Do I just give a lot of love and spaciousness or do I give, you know, hard, fast rules? And there's a lot of space in between. So yes, we need guidance. We need tools. We need to say, sit down, stay with the breath, find an anchor, settle the body, settle the mind, right? Those are important things to teach, very important things to teach. And then we're moving out into maybe we're doing, working with feelings, maybe we're working with emotions, maybe we're working with a mind, and we are teaching them how to do that. You know, you all learned the RAIN acronym for a reason. It's a good 
it's a good guideline. They're good tools to, to use. And then once we've laid down these tools and these guidelines, then we need to give the students a lot of space and a lot of place to practice within a lot of curiosity, a lot of questioning, but yes, it is important um, to answer one of those questions. It is important to lay down some really safe, you know, can, it can feel like a very safe space to land if we know what we're supposed to be doing. And it gives our students confidence um, to work on something and to grapple with something um, that they don't know yet. And one of the things that I love to have is a lot of metaphors in my teaching so that it's not always and only about the breath and the mind and the heart and sitting and, you know, sort of when I bring in the metaphor of working with this practice is sort of like a physical workout at the gym, right? We know that if we only go to the gym once a week and we only lift a few dumbbells or barbells or whatever they're called, and we expect great results, we're, de we're deluding ourselves, right? We know, we know that something has to be more regular. It has to be more um, rigorous. It has to be more, you know, uh, uh, intentional. And so the same is true for our sitting practice. Yes, a formal sitting practice is important. And it's because the formal sitting practice is the gym. And then we get to walk around with these, you know, bodies that we feel healthier in and happier in the rest of the time. But we have to go to the gym to solidify it. We have to brush our teeth every day, twice a day, hopefully, or there's an outcome, right? We have to take out the trash every day or there's an outcome. So really, you know, when our students are asking us how important is it for us to sit still on a cushion, it's important. And we're teaching our nervous system, we're teaching our brains, we're teaching our old habit patterns how to re-engage with the mind, um, with the body, with our hearts, so that we can then take our practice off the cushion and into the world and be a more engaged practitioner. So students will come to you with questions that are both questions about their sitting practice, like what do I need to know? How can I do this to be successful? That will be a question. And then how do I then carry it out into my world? How do I then carry it out into my family, my community, my work? And so you'll get questions that are running the gamut from very personal to very interpersonal, communal, and global. You know, think karma questions will come up. You know, questions around race and gender and identity and oppression and marginal, all of these things will come up when we're sitting with people that are trying to be intentional with their own personal practice. Because this practice is not exclusive. It is not only about sitting still and it is not only about um, showing up in the world. What we get the benefit of from a mindfulness practice is how do these engage with each other and how can I um, live my life to the fullest, right? So the questions that you get from students will be vast. And it's important that, um, you know, I, I, I love this idea lately really of staying in my lane, you know, staying to what I know, teaching to what I know so that I then can be um, useful because I'm not going to be useful as a teacher if I'm parroting something that somebody else said. And then I certainly won't be able to answer a question that somebody has for me if I'm parroting something that somebody else said. Or if I'm telling a story that somebody else told. Um, because it was their experience. Um, really important to share from our experience. And if you feel like your experience is narrow, that's fine. That's where it is right now, right? But teach to that, then that way we can answer to that. And then that way we can be helpful, which is why I would assume that most people here want to do this teaching thing. It's, it's service work. It's service work. So us always remembering who we are serving and why we are serving them, just like we'll be asking them why they're practicing, right? We aren't, people aren't practicing to punish themselves, hopefully. People are practicing because they would like to grow. And they, there's things that they feel um, about the mindfulness practice that can help them do that. Um, 
one thing that I have felt very useful when people are inquiring into the actual sitting practice instead of a more broad question is I love to actually do the practice with the questioner live, live and direct in the room with the other students sitting there uh, listening. So for instance, somebody comes to me with a question around emotions, which is a big one, right? And I, and I could tell them about the RAIN acronym and maybe they'll get it, right? Maybe they'll understand it. But one thing I've really started doing and love it, even in a room full of 100 people, is, okay, let's practice this together. And we'll actually close our eyes and I'll actually have them walk me through what they're experiencing. So this way I can, I can know intimately what the question is and they can tell me, for instance, let's say somebody is working with fear and they keep going into a story about fear. They keep going into history. They keep going into a time when or times when. So instead of just talking maybe about rain, recognizing and accept, I'll say, okay, well tell me where in your body, where right now, present time, are you feeling that? And then I'll have them report to me. They'll say, okay, well, it's in my heart. Okay, tell me more about what you're feeling in your heart. Does it have a vibration? Does it have a texture? Does it have a, a color? Okay, it's heavy. It's tender, right? So this way that we can go into the inquiry together, go into the eye together, and it really helps. This has been one of my most important teaching moments, and I continue to use it because I see how valuable it is. It really helps to be in the live experience with our students in the room, with other students present, because it can answer a lot of questions that a lot of people have. So be willing to take you know, really an intimate risk with the people that we're working with and that we're teaching with. and having this, again, the reminder that I'm doing this for a reason, and it's to serve the questions that people have about their practice and the group growth that they're interested in. Um, so, so much more to say, and I know that we got some great questions. I'd love to maybe uh, directly address those now, um, if it feels like a good time. It feels like a good time, definitely. Thank you for that. And I'd like to pick up uh, right where you were leaving off. You mentioned the RAIN acronym a couple of times, and you started to uh, take us through a process. Can you say a little bit more about the, that acronym, its place in our practice and in our teaching, just for the, for the benefit of those who are watching who might not have gone through that part of the training just yet? Sure. Yeah. So I, I wish I knew actually who made up that acronym. You might actually, Christy, I'm not, I don't know, but it's been going around for a long time and it was a good one. Um, it's not necessarily the only one, but I know that it was given in your training. Um, RAIN is typically used around mental and emotional um, relationship to our practice. And so the R is recognizing. So first when, so, and this is used when we're in formal practice. It's not a practice to use so much when we're walking around the world and moving fast, but when we're sitting and something difficult feels to be arising and we feel really stuck in it is first to recognize that something's going, going on, right? Something's going on. I'm uncomfortable recognizing that that's there without having to try to work in the mental space to figure it out, just settling in the, huh, something's up. I have a lot of sadness right now, and it's, it's spinning me out in my mind. Let's just, let's just recognize that there's sadness there versus the story about my early parenting and my, you know, what might be running and trying to figure out and remember and how did this happen to me and why me and what's going on. And there, there is a place for that sometimes, but in the RAIN acronym, the recognition is more, okay, what is the emotional state that's arising? So our rec recognize sadness, and I'm going to use just sadness throughout this whole explanation. And then the acceptance of that sadness, the A, 
the acceptance or the allowance, um, it's often said as allowance, is, okay, well, what is sadness? Sadness, oof, okay, I'm sad. Let's just call it that. Don't need to figure it out. Don't need to push it away. Sadness is happening right now. The I, the investigation or the inquiry, this is where we get into that space of, okay, sadness, how do I know I'm sad? Oh, I know I'm sad because my heart feels really heavy. I might feel shut off at my throat area. My mind wants to tell a lot of stories about my sadness. My belly feels tight. You know, I'm just giving examples. This might not be everyone's experience of sadness, but that's the inquiry. That's the investigation. What's going on right now? How do I know I'm sad? You know, because sad is a concept, right? Sad is a concept. So let's figure out what is sadness or what I'm calling sadness feel like in this moment. So those are some of the, you know, my body feels heavy. My head feels heavy. You know, so really inquiring what's going on next. Okay. And then I start thinking, okay, thinking happens. And then I come back to the body, right? Come back to the direct experience. And then when we do that, we, we're watching it arise and pass. It gets bigger, it gets smaller, giving it as much space as it needs, not trying to shut it down, not, you know, trying not to contract around it, but allowing it. This, you know, so the A and the I, and the, these all keep moving back and forth together. So allow enough space for whatever this inquiry is to be there. And then when we continue doing that, and it might not be the first or the second or the third time, but the N is this non-identification aspect. It's not personal. It's like, oh, I have, if we get close to it enough, it's like, oh yeah, I've felt this before. And it was actually related to something entirely different than what I'm, you know, giving it credit for this time. Oh, I have felt sadness before. Okay, yeah, I felt that when I was two, I felt that when I was three, I felt that when I was four, I felt that when I was 12, I felt that when I was 16, right? Sadness, sadness, a human emotion. And so the non-personalizing non of it, the non-identifying with it is allowing us the space, A, to know that, you know, I'm really into community elements and aspects of being in, in practice, but to know that all of humanity experiences suffering, right? Um, and that this particular flavor of suffering is happening right now. And I will experience sadness again. Um, so that's the rain. That's rain. I know that was very subtle. And um, this is why it's fun to practice it with people live, is to really allow people to experience the levels of, of emotion and how our mind affects our emotional states and how our emotional states affect our mind. You know, it's an interplay. Um, and why it's so beautiful, again, a plug to practice with other people, practice in community, practice in like-minded community, so that when those things arise, you know, we're not just thinking that we alone are the only ones who suffer in this way, but a, a great way to... Um, you know, have true compassion for others and work with empathy and work with these other ways of being um, so that our practice becomes more fluid and informational as we live our lives every day. It's not only about one thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, you also talked about uh, appreciating the value of being in your lane or being in one's lane. And then you made a comment about uh, still honoring that even if you think your lane is narrow. So a question that came up for me as a teacher in training, uh, what if my lane feels narrow in that I don't have deep meditation experience. I'm wanting primarily to deepen my own practice by becoming a teacher. That's a big part of, of you know, coming into this program. And before that, I lived a largely um, secular or non-spiritual, not particularly mindful life, working in this nine to five in a completely unrelated area. How can I then mine the depth of value 
in what I perceive as a narrow lane to then bring it to my students in a way that is uh, enriching to their own practice. Good. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so I have, this is my opinion <laughs> and my view. So I just want to make sure we're clear on that. Um, one is that I hope that we never ever stop practicing as teachers. I feel like the moment we stop practicing, the moment we stop going to other teachers, going to teachings, taking in new information can be a really almost dangerous time for people, right? Like we really need to have the input and the um, direct experience of our practice be alive and well if we're going to be teaching these things. Um, Because like I said, we do have the hearts and minds of other beings that take what we say as, you know, they need us, they need it, what they're learning. Um, So that's, that's just one, that's a plug for never stop learning. Um, And then really teach to what you know. I mean, there is, I was talking to Sharon Salzberg once who has written multiple books on around Meta and loving kindness and, you know, teaches all around the world and and I asked her, because I, I was teaching with her, and I said, well, it doesn't look like you prepare for a Dharma talk. Why, why is that? Is there ever a time that you prepare? And she said, no, I don't have to prepare when I'm teaching loving kindness or when I'm teaching what I know. She said, but if I'm going to teach something totally different, I'm going to really prepare, right? So it was sort of this, like, she was saying, you know, what I heard was what I know so well, I don't need to prepare because it's just coming. It's, you know, that phrase, I know it by heart. You know, I know it by heart means it's because uh, it's not up here. It's here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the teachings are alive and well, and we can, we can see it from every side. So when there's a question, we know how to answer it because um, we know it by heart. We've really practiced with it. So that staying in your lane part, and I don't want to make it maybe narrow was a, um, you know, was not a a generous word, but it's really um, taking seriously uh, what we know and how people are going to use it, right? So oftentimes, especially when we get excited about something, we want to, we want to not only do, if we have sort of like a teacher archetype within us, we don't only want to practice it, but we also want to share it, right? That's just our natural affinity is to then want to share it. And like, oh, this could be valuable to a lot of people. So I'm gonna, but then watch, you know, one of the things I do in my small groups and my large groups a lot, because I have two, two groups that I mentor on for MMTCP, is I ask them, I have the group ask them questions and difficult questions so that we can learn how to, so more not to put people on, on the spot, but to see what we don't know yet. And what are we teaching that we don't quite know yet? And how do we need to fine tune? So, um... I think it's beautiful and not everyone has the impetus to teach. You know, it's like, it's funny. It really is an archetype in my mind. Um, that the, the one that wants to teach, um, but really, you know, getting into why we want to teach, you know, really asking the honest question. Are we teaching for power? Are we teaching for control? Are we teaching to be in front of a room? Are we teaching for attention? Are we teaching? Why are we teaching? You know, it's an important question to ask. Um, And then from that space, hopefully the answer is to serve and to really show up for people and help them learn. Um, I think then we can get to a point where we feel a little bit more stable in what we decide to teach and what we actually believe in and know to be true. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. (laughs) Yes, very much so. Um, And that points me to a couple of other questions that came in from students, and I'm just going to combine them. Uh, Mm -hmm. We had some questions around worthiness. Who am I to be a teacher and to guide students through difficult Uh, emotions during a sit or a talk and how can I also take care of myself by showing up in a way that is embodied and grounded and spacious enough 
to allow everything in as it arises. Yeah, important. It's good. And I think it goes back to a little bit about what I was saying, but, you know, I would ask everyone right now to just check into their intention. What is, what is the intention? Um, (laughs) One of my favorite teachers, I was just with her in North Carolina this past weekend. And she says to me, this is someone I really respect. She does a lot of race work and a lot of bias work. And she said, you know, every student wants to kill you. just like dang okay (laughs) that's a fun way to sit in front of a room but you know it's it's true and it's like well I if I am in my integrity if I am in my depth of knowing if I am in a space where I am wanting to generously offer what I have learned um it's much harder to feel pushed off you know, it's much harder to be off balance than when, you know, I'm kind of on a, a house of cards, right? And it's just like, well, I'm building this on very thin, you know, and, and I'm going to hope that they believe me or I'm going to hope that I come across as, as knowing what I'm talking about. So, you know, I think it's a really important inquiry, what you're asking and what the, the people are asking. Yeah, how... Yeah, asking the question back, how do you know? Or why do you think? Um, I know an aspect of that, one of the questions I read, and I think it's compounded with that you were putting those questions together, is how much vulnerability is available to the teacher in front of the room? How much, mm-hmm. um, how much do I share of my story? How much, how much do I disclose? And, you know, again... Part of teaching is being sensitive to our audience. Part of teaching is being sensitive to what is needed. So we're not disclosing. We're not being vulnerable for our own benefit. We don't want our students to have to take care of us, right? Um, Joseph Goldstein once said, you know, and and this is debatable. I'm not saying this, but what he said was, you know, don't share something unless it's processed for you. So don't come in with like my husband decided he was going to get a new job and move us to Sri Lanka next week if you haven't processed that yet, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But share, two years ago, my husband came home and said, we're moving to Sri Lanka, and this was my process, right? So really being careful not to put a burden on our students or not to, um, the vulnerability can be the vulnerability can still be there that that was a very hard move for me and I didn't necessarily want to do it, but it was what was best for our family. We can share that kind of vulnerability. Um, so again, really um, teaching is, is yes, the words that come out of our mouth, the preparedness that we have, the wisdom that we might have, but it's also a deep facilitation sensitivity. We really know, have to need how to hold a room and how to hold a space and how to be aware of what's in front of us. And when we've been practicing long enough, we learn how to work with um, that experience, right? So it's mm-hmm. such an alive thing. It's so alive. There's no one answer um, because so much of it depends on if I'm speaking to a room of 250 academics and I only have them for an hour, it's going to be one thing. When I'm teaching to a room of, you know, retreatants who are in silence for 10 days, it's going to be a different thing. So a deep sensitivity to where we are, what we're delivering, when we do, how we're showing up in it, you know. Um, so it's, it's very fluid, and this is where I think the beauty and the creativity of being a teacher gets to be alive. It's not still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have uh, time for one final question. Ah, okay. Which I know, and we have so many, so many questions. But I am, okay. I am again going to collapse a couple of questions into one okay. because that's how I do. Um, okay. So you mentioned. Uh, not bringing, not going into places that you haven't already processed for yourself in terms of vulnerability. Um, and you also mentioned uh, that you were speaking with someone who works a lot around uh, race and ethnicity, uh, social justice, I'm imagining. Um, so 
in in the in conflating these two questions, what do you suggest to a new teacher when they've come together in a room of people of diverse backgrounds, ethnic, racial, gender, all of that, and there is something that is is hot and happening right outside the doors. Maybe that is uh, police brutality. Maybe that is immigration. Maybe that is some sort of big pushback against uh, a gender or gender bias or something. There is great potential, particularly in this current climate, for issues to be hot and unresolved and unprocessed, and yet we're still all thrown into the cauldron together, how do you suggest we might navigate that while we're also turned around by it? Yeah. While we, meaning the teacher. Right. No, beautiful. Good. Important. And I hope, I hope, Christy, that people do have a room that's, that's diverse. I really do because it's not typically the trend mm-hmm. in the world of mindfulness, right? It's it's a big struggle actually to find rooms that are truly diverse and where we can have that kind of live learning experience. So that's just one <laughs> one aside, mm-hmm. and a lot of us are working on that and changing that. And uh, why I'm so honored to be sitting across from you, um, honestly. So yeah, hopefully, see. A lot of people like to use the practice as a bypass, as some sort of transcendent, you know, liberative um, practice so that I don't, so either I can explain away human suffering or so that I can say that because of this practice, I have somehow lifted my heart and mind out of this human dimension and I no longer need to feel that. I only experience love, right? Like, <laughs> and I hope I'm not sounding like no. terrible, but you know, it's like, I hear that a lot. I hear a lot of people go, all I feel and see is love. And it's like, okay, well, that's great. And you realize that, like you're saying that, you know, DACA is real and, the hatred for our Muslims is real and black bodies being harmed is real. And, you know, we're working both at, in these practices with this sort of transcendent and these relative experiences, um, which for some can feel like a paradox, but for me is feeling more and more like this is the space. So here's this transcendent and here's this relative. And then this is the space we need to practice in, in community. Right. Mm-hmm. this space. Mm-hmm. So all those things we talk about on the cushion around, okay, I can sit through my discomfort. I can, you know, I can rein myself through an emotion. I can, this is what we need to learn how to do honestly um, within our communities, within our Dharma circles, or sorry, I said the word Dharma in our meditation mindfulness <laughs> circles. So, there are going to be plenty of teachers out there that aren't interested in the conversation and want to have this experience of, you know, I really just want to give my students a safe, comfortable place. So for once, for an hour a day, they can just not have to deal with the dis-ease that's happening out in the world. So that is some one way or some ways that some teachers will approach um, the, what you're talking about. And that's fine. You know, that's obviously everybody out there is going to have differing and varying views. And then, um, I, for one have intentional groups where we just let all hell break loose on purpose. I'll be doing that this Sunday in my POC and ally group where the point is to, when that's up, when we're agitated, when we're inflamed, when we're angry, when our hearts are on fire, that doesn't mean we have to abandon our practice and we don't have to abandon each other. Oh, okay. Check it out. Again, I would say, okay, what's going on for you right now? Rage. Where do you feel rage in my heart, in my jaw, in my fist? Okay. Let's practice with that, right? Like having a mindfulness community is all is working with everything. It's not excluding anything. So it's really um, paying deep attention and also And again, this won't be true for all. Some people feel like their practice is a very individual, 
practice and others feel like it's all about healing community. You know, there's more of like a bodhisattva sort of like, I will not awaken until all beings have awakened part of their practice. So I think it's important also, I mean, there's many teachers that I respect deeply who really just want to teach the core teachings and I'm going to leave that other stuff to other people. And then there's people that are like, I'm only going to teach about social justice and mindfulness and I'll leave that other stuff to those people. Right. And so, um, that's the benefit of not putting all of your eggs in one teacher basket. You know, I really encourage people and I encourage my students to be with multiple different teachers from multiple lineages and multiple viewpoints and multiple advantages so that we don't like deify or guruify our teachers. So that goes back into the Q and a part. It's like, okay, if you don't have the right answer or you don't know, it's okay to refer. It's okay to say, you know, I read this great book and I'm grappling with this too. Maybe we can all grapple with it together next week, you know, or if you find something out, will you let me know? You know, if you practice with it, will you let me know? Because I'm learning too. And so that's where community is so valuable. Um, and we can get into, you know, what's happening politically. We can get into what's happening on this planet um, because we start to learn to move with each other um, versus trying to just like individualistically try to figure it out as a teacher or as a student. So, yeah, it's big and it's really important. And um, it's the waters I swim in most of the time. Uh and it's not always popular. So <laughs> then I get to practice with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Joanna Hardy. Wow. Thank you so much for your time today. I am sorry we didn't get to all of the questions, um, but the ones that we got to and the information that you shared was really um, thought-provoking and enlightening. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope you always, everybody always has questions. Yeah. When you stop having questions, <laughs> maybe you're enlightened. I don't know. <laughs> Keep asking questions. <laughs> I will. Okay. We will. Okay. <laughs> this concludes our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program broadcast once again. So much gratitude to Joanna for this great presentation. We want to extend our gratitude as well to all of you who joined us tonight because your participation makes these sessions so much richer. Thank you for your questions. For Sounds True, I'm Christy Peoples. Appreciative for it all.